All right. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn with me, if you would, to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter in chapter 1. Now, for those of you who've been with us as we've been working our way through 1 Peter and now the transition into 2 Peter, this is the third sermon into uh, 2 Peter, and we're still in chapter 1. We're going to be covering four verses today, verses 12 through 15. And it is somewhat of a transition that happens in the book of 2 Peter. In the next few um, sermons, we're going to hopefully deliver the, the main meat of the service, uh, of, the, of the whole book, I mean, excuse me. And the notion is, is that we're warning against heresy. And so I've entitled today's message, The Motivation of the Pastor's Heart Against Heresy. That's the title. It's rather long, so, but if you've got a bulletin, it's on the back of the bulletin, and we're going to, you can fill in the spaces as we make it, make our way through there. So if you've made your way to 2 Peter, I'm going to ask you to stand, if you would, please, in reverence and honor of the Word of God. And here we begin, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. It begins like this, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to, you, uh, to put you always in remembrance of these things, Though ye know them, and be established in the present truth, yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as the, our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the day and thank you for your many blessings. And Lord, today we praise you and give you honor. And we ask of a special blessing today that we might receive your word and hear the motivation of a pastor's heart against heresy and those things around us that would spiritually detract from your kingdom and your, and your word. And we give you all the praise and the glory today. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All right, as we begin this morning, let me encourage you... I, I always encourage people to study your word. I never want it to be about uh, what I am saying per se. I really want it to be about what the word of God says. So I hope you brought your pen and uh, some way to mark your Bible up because today we're going to be taking a journey in much of the, uh, a great deal of the New Testament. So I encourage you to do that. Here in, in 2 Peter, the apostle is, of course, writing to all of the churches, but in, in, there is a thrust that takes hold here in this particular passage about his heart and really why he's diligent and uh, persevering to get the ideas of pushing back against heresy out there. The early church experienced much of what we're experiencing even in modern church times today. There's a, there's a circle of thought around uh, in the modern churches that we have dealt with all the heresy and therefore nothing else can hurt us. The problem with that is you have a lot of people who have a, a, a great deal to say about what they think God's Word really says. Instead of just saying, here's what God's Word says, thus saith the Lord, they're busy about making up their own interpretations of it. And can I make sure that you understand, the Word of God is not given up to private interpretations. It's, it's out there so that we can know exactly. Now, I know that's a, a scary thought for some, that there is unequivocally a prescribed notion of what God desires of us, and it is steadfast and unchanging, but that's the way the Word of God's written. It's not given up for us to interpret it this way or that way. It simply is, and that's how we're going to approach it today. Not complicated, not even hard. It's just what the Word of God says. And here in 2 Peter, Peter is going to write and remind us that he's got a heart for what's about to happen, and he wants to correct some things that are going on. Now, 2 Peter and Jude are written specifically to guard against heresy. Now, in most of the New Testament, there is a great deal in Paul's writings specifically about heresy in almost every single book, with the exception of maybe Philemon, that, that doesn't talk specifically about some notion of heresy. And so, and how to guard against it. So today we're going to look at 2 Peter. And again, in chapters 2 and 3 is a primary, or a primary of really that notion of fighting against heresy and how to do it. But here is a transition in, in this chapter, in, first, in, uh, in chapter 1, to give us kind of that jump off place. It's the pastor's heart. 
And Peter was a, was a pastor as much as he was an apostle and a disciple of Jesus Christ. So Paul, or excuse me, Peter writes this so that we can understand and know his heart on the matter. So I'm going to give you some motivations from a pastor's heart, at least three, okay? There's probably a couple more I may have missed, but let's hope not. Let's get right into it. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, says, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Now, he makes the assertion that you already know. And that's the hope, right? But he always wants to put us in, in remembrance. One of the great truths of Scripture is that things get repeated. Do you know why things get repeated? The same reason that you repeat things over and over and over and over to your kids and your grandkids, because you think they're just not listening. And sometimes there's a need just to reiterate something. For instance, uh, when my granddaughter comes over to the house, we make sure that she doesn't try to plug things into the outlets, right? It's a, and we keep having to repeat it. And don't touch the stove because it's hot. And we keep repeating it. Why do we keep repeating it? Because you need to learn. She needs to learn. And in the same vein, in all of the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see repetitiveness happening over and over again. God has to remind the nation of Israel over and over again that He is their God. Why? Because every 100 or 200 years, there's a generation that forgets. Why is the preaching of the gospel still going on after 2,000 years? Well, simply put, because we have forgotten some things. And so they need to be repeated. In much of the New Testament, it always works out. Old Testament, New Testament, there are three basic principles that God always repeats. And I'll give them to you real quick. It's not even complicated, right? There is the law, there is judgment, and there is forgiveness. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament always cover those three things in a repetitive fashion so that we are reminded that God is in control under His law and that He will judge it based on that law and that He can forgive if we will but ask. Those are the principles. So the motivation of a pastor's heart, then against heresy, is to push back. So I want to give you basically three things, and I'll kind of cover it real quick. There's the motive of urgency, right? The motive of urgency, the motive of diligence, right? And I'll give, go ahead and give you the third one just so you have it. And the motive of faithfulness. Three things from this particular passage of Scripture. Let's start with the first one. It's easy to cover, and it'll go pretty quick. This is the motive of urgency. I, I don't know when the Lord's coming back. I don't know when He's coming back to judge the quick and the dead. I don't have that information. He doesn't give us that in Scripture. He does say that He is coming back. Praise the Lord. We know He is coming. We just don't know when. Here's, here's the second truth I know about, about His coming. I do know it's, we're closer to it now than we were yesterday. And every day we move forward and more close to His coming. Because we can only move linearly through time. We have only to wait until it happens. But we know He's coming. We, he's told us He's coming. So uh, pastors in particular have an, a sense of urgency in their message. And in that urgency, there's a couple of things. There's repetition of truth, the repetition of truth in that urgency. Let me show it to you here. Verse 12 says, Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things. You see, every time Paul or Peter or any of the, the apostles get up to speak, they have a message sent forth from God. That's the gospel, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've always got that. And there is that sense of urgency that people are dying in their sins and they're going to go to hell. And our responsibility then is to tell them that that's, that's the truth. It's not subjective. It's not optional. It is happening. Now, we've been worried in the last few months with COVID-19 and all of the, the things that are going on around it, people wearing masks, and, and, and you should be careful and do what you think you need to do. But here, let me tell you something else. You need to prepare on another level. You need to get out there ahead of this thing on a whole different level or paradigm. And what I'm talking about is, where are you spiritually? Where is your family spiritually? Are you motivated to lead and guide your family into eternity? There is a sense of urgency, not just with the pastor of the church. It's on me. 
I get it. But also with every father, every mother, every person out here, that eternity's coming at some point or another. 150,000 people will die each day in the world. Most of them without Jesus Christ. They've not prepared. So why do we preach? Why is there this sense of urgency? It's simply because death is coming for us all at some point or another. You say, that's a heavy message. But no, it's, it's not really. It's also the truth, and the truth can set you free. If you live with God's help and, 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 and preparation of, of eternity, death is not a fearful thing. It's a stepping off place. So if you're prepared for eternity, I mean, it's going to be sad. It's going to be a hard time for families. And any time a, a death happens, it is that. But knowing what happens next is the urgency of the call. So I want to give you some things. The, the, first, the repetition of the truth and urgency. Philippians chapter 3. Now, this is where we start making hay as far as going to different passages in Scripture. So I hope you've brought your Bible to circle and do what you need to do. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Love that passage of Scripture. Because the very first thing is, he says, rejoice in the Lord. And we should. We should rejoice often. But listen to the second part. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. He has to write to them. He has to put them in remembrance. He has to remind them of the basic things so that they can proceed to greater things. Unless your foundation is firm, the rest of it won't help you. You can have all the knowledge of, of end-time prophecies and all of that, and that's great and good, but if you don't have the basics of the knowledge of Jesus Christ and your salvation standing firm in that, you don't have anything. Look, I love prophecy. I love to read about it. I love to listen to other preachers talk about it. I love that kind of stuff because I'm, I'm looking forward to it. But if I don't have the basic premise that the, the Lord Jesus Christ came by virgin birth, grew up as a man, was sacrificed on the cross for me, and died and rose again the third day, and is going to sit at and is sitting at the Father's right hand, I've missed it. If I don't have the gospel correct, I miss it. You see, the gospel is real simple. The gospel is this idea that man has gone outside the will of God and is a sinner, a sinner being defined as one who commits a trespass against God's law, and we all have done it, whether it's one white lie that you've told over here or something you've stolen over here or the look with lust that you had over there. All of those things add up and suddenly you become the sinner that the Bible talks about. And sin has to be dealt with. Well, God says, I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to send my son, born of a virgin so you know the, the bloodline's pure, living a sinless life on the earth so the, you know, the sacrifice is safe, <coughs> dying a sacrificial death on the cross so that you might have eternal life. Son, and how do you know it's going to be eternal? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day under his own power that he might prove and be the first fruits of the resurrection. I'm so excited about that part. So see, the gospel's simple, it's not complicated. And so when Peter writes here, he says, you need to guard against, now that you've got your salvation secure and we're going to put you in remembrance of those things, we want to make sure now that you're able to stand against the wiles of the devil and the heresy of his prophets. Because Satan has prophets just the same way that God does. He's a great imitator. Let's take a look. Repetition of the truth and urgency? Yeah. Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 14, it says, And I myself, Paul the Apostle writes, also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to also admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God. Paul says, I'm going to remind you of the grace of God. We need to be reminded of the grace of God often. Often. You know, it's in the small things that we need to be reminded of the grace of God. 
We need to be reminded when that, that person cuts you off in traffic. I talk about traffic a lot in my sermons, by the way. Yeah, I think it's just because we deal with it so much here. And it's starting to come back now that everything's starting to open up. But tr- when that person cuts you off in traffic and it makes you mad, and, and, and my, as my wife often reminds me, they could be just on the way to the hospital or to uh, visit somebody who's in desperate need or maybe somebody's called them for some kind of emergency or something. And, and it's there so that we're reminded we need to have compassion. And it's hard. So hard. I, it may not be for you. Traffic may not be your sin. Okay? I, I consider traffic a sin, just so you know. Because it causes me to sin a lot. And I have to go back and repent often. And I think it's just Bentonville. I don't have that trouble when I get out to Eureka or any other place. It's, it's just, they just drive slower out there. I just have to pull my lead foot off the gas pedal a little bit. But here it seems like it's just a struggle all the time. So there's a repetition in the urgency of truth. And, and we need to be reminded often that people are made in the image of God and deserving of, deserving, I guess, of a little bit more compassion on our side. Where would we be without the compassion of the Lord? We'll get to that in a little bit. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Now, I, I read this all the time, but let's put it in perspective with the repetition of urgency and the truth. Philippians 4, 8 and 9 says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Now, that's, that's the part we're supposed to think about. And it's an urgency that we need to think about those things. Verse 9 gives us the, really the, the teeth to it. Here's what it says. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. And the God of peace shall be with you. Now, Paul writes it out so that we understand the, the pastor's heart on it. Those things you've seen the pastor do, those things you've seen Paul the apostle do, those things you've seen Peter do, And sometimes we forget to be an example. When you're discipling others, what are they seeing when you disciple? Because you can impart to them all the truth of Scripture, but if you're not living it, it it doesn't work. It becomes disassociative. It's the same way with children. When you're raising up children, if they're not seeing you do the things you're telling them to do, there's a disconnect that'll happen. Now, look, they're going to have to come to the place where it's on them at some point, but until it's on them, it's on you, parent, pastor, teacher, to live the life that you're instructing others to live. There's a sense of urgency about it. Why? Because if, if we have one person disconnect, if we, if we are doing with our bodies those things we shouldn't, the urgency dissipates. The urgency is not there because now, they see us do other things. They see us not about the things of God. You know, Jesus said to, uh, said to his disciples, I, I, I've got to be about my Father's business. You know, can we say that? You know, when he was in the temple, he says, I've I got to be about my Father's business. Are we saying that to, to those around us? There's a sense of urgency that happens. Now, the second part of this is you need to understand there are no new spiritual truths i would love to tell you that there's some brand new revelation out there there's not in fact the bible tells us that it's only really a revisiting of the older ones ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9 says the thing that hath been it is that which shall be and that which is done is that which shall be done and there is no new thing under the sun I would love to tell you that, that uh, there's some brand new revelation from God, that I've got some kind of new insight for you. What I've got is the same Word of God that He demands and expects us to know and understand. It's just now, you, maybe it's just coming to you. Because sometimes what we do is we disassociate. Again, I use that word, but really that's what it is for us. We'll hear the passage of Scripture preached, and we'll, we'll say, oh, well, that was nice. And then later on, we'll come back to that same passage of Scripture, 
and suddenly it begins to open up to you because now you're a different place spiritually and it means more to you. Now, if that's what's meant by new revelation, okay, but I'm going to tell you it's not new. It's always been there. Sometimes we haven't discovered it yet, but it's same, the same spiritual truth is there for us. Let's dive into that, that concept. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in Matthew for just a little bit. Matthew chapter 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' main public sermon that is recorded from one end to the other. And I, and I got to tell you that when you, when you hear this sermon and began to dive into it, when we studied it back a few years ago, we, we really poured into it. But I need you to see that there's a repetitive thing that happens, even with Jesus. When Jesus showed up, he tells them something. Listen to this. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Think not that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth shall pass, not one, one jot nor one, or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. So the, the notion is, we're going to keep talking about it. We're just going to keep talking about it. You want to talk about the law? Okay, here's the law, and it, and it didn't go away. I know that everybody wants to have, excuse me, the law go away. Oh, we all do. We desire that the law would go away, that, that grace would take its place, and that the law would no longer be applicable. But it's not the case. The law becomes fulfilled by grace. What you don't see is the in-between. And it's found in Scripture for us. We see that there's a transition of the truth that keeps going from the law to grace. It's expressed in grace because the, the Israelites understood law, because Moses had given the law, and they were not to do certain things. Then grace comes along and says, we understand, I understand, God says, I understand, you can't fulfill it on your own, so you need another way. You need a way in which you can fulfill that law. That's only done in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. It can't be done any other way. The discovery in the Old Testament was God has law, but we can't keep it. The discovery in the New Testament is God has law and we can't keep it. But Christ came and fulfilled it so that we can at some point. Are you talking about sinless perfection? No, it's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about God's righteousness being imputed to you through His Son, Jesus Christ. There's a transfer that happens when we believe He gives it to us. It's a great thing. I can't attain it on my own. It had to be given to me by God. I didn't earn it. There's nothing I could do to earn it. I accepted His offer of grace. And His grace was given to me. His righteousness imputed to me that I might stand before God holy. Not because I can have sinless perfection, but because of what Jesus did for me in his righteousness. So that spiritual truth then is nothing new. God's always had it. The problem is, is our view of sin. Our view of sin is stunted. Here's what I mean by stunted. If I were to look at sin and I would ask you, are you a good person? Well, the answer comes back almost all the time. Not always, but almost all the time. Yes, I'm a great person. And let me tell you how. How great I am. Because we love our own self-righteousness. And here's the deal. How do we measure it? This is the stunted part. We measure it by our neighbor. I measure my sin by Rick. Or Rick measures it by Alicia. Or whatever out there. We measure up next to each other saying, yep, I'm better than they are. When the measurement isn't, I'm better than my neighbor, the measurement is... God is here, where am I in conjunction to that? If God is sinless perfection, where do I fall in that ladder? Well, our righteousness is as filthy rags. Dirty, stinky rags. That's how good ours is in comparison to God's. We have no standing, so Christ had to give us standing. There are no new spiritual truths. We can't go back and say, well, I've got some new now spiritual truth that is, that is applicable in this age and this age only. That's just not true. God's been telling you that and telling all of humanity that since the beginning. It was real simple in the garden. I'm the Lord God. You're walking with me every day. I have one rule. Don't touch that tree right there. Don't eat of the fruit of it. Okay. 
What do you know? Not too long, time passes. We break the first law. We end up in sin as the whole human race. And now we're born in iniquity, born in sin, and we have need again of grace that was once offered in the initial garden. It's crazy. But that's how we operate. Now, I take you back to the passage of Matthew. Jesus says, and he repeats himself. He repeats himself in the Old Testament and the New Testament and everything in the between. Listen to this in Matthew. This is Matthew 5, 21, just a few verses later. In Matthew 5, 21, it says, You've heard that it has been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now let's just pause there for a second. Why did Jesus have to repeat something that had already been said? Well, because there is this notion of divine repetition. And it is, it is there. The problem is, is that we misconstrued what God was saying. We said, well, okay, thou shalt not kill. So if I don't kill, I'm okay. However, if we take to the position that if in our minds we have killed with our minds, but we're angry to that point where we would have killed them, but we just didn't physically do it, we're still breaking the law. y'all hear me at all? That means that if I thought unto myself that, man, that guy really should die for what he did, but I'm not going to do it, that makes me a hypocrite here because I'm thinking it. And he says, if you're angry to the point of murder, where you're thinking that murder should happen, you're in danger of the judgment. And he wants to go back and fix what's broken. See, man in his, in his wisdom, uh, if you're here for, with us on Wednesday night, you'll learn about man's wisdom real quick. Man in his wisdom has this problem. We change things to suit ourselves. We do it all the time. Justification of the mind happens often. And so the notion is, is that we, we create our own spiritual truth through that. <laughs> Here's what we say. Well, if I... Maybe I think it, but I don't do it, right? And that's the notion behind this. And the same with the next one and the next one. We do them all. Listen to this one. This is in Matthew, the same thing. He says this in Matthew 5, 27, just a few verses later. You've heard it said by, uh, by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. There's a heart issue again. It's that inside man. It's, that, it's what you're thinking, what you're about. That has changed you. It's changed the notion from, well, I didn't do it, so therefore I'm okay, to I've thought it and I'm not okay. Because thinking is the same as doing it. Say, no, it's not. Well, that's your justification, but that's what God says. God says when you think that, you're, you might as well have done it. Because it's the same. It creates the same kind of emotion in you, and it creates the same kind of heart issue in you, when you think it. If, if you think to lust, guess what? You're lusting. It's not complicated. If you think to murder, you're murdering. It's, it's not complicated. You say, well, it's not the physical act. Well, no, but you might as well have because you're done with that person. You're done with them. There's no chance that you're going to get back and, and, and work that out because you're done. They might as well be dead to you. You see? Comes about real quick, doesn't it? Take a look, Matthew 31, just a few verses later. It had been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. Same mindset. Look, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to give my warning here. I don't write the mail. I just deliver it. Okay? So, I know there's some people who have problems with this passage of Scripture. I'm going to help you out. Go to God with it. Okay? <laughs> Here's what it says. Put away his wife and let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. I didn't write it. But it's right there. It's a heart issue. See, all of these are heart issues. And that's what most people don't understand. They're thinking the act itself, the physical act, is really the problem. It's not. It's the issue of the heart. You know, I choose every day to love my wife. Every single day. 
because I don't fall in and out of love with her. I choose to love. It's not a matter of me falling in and out, because if I could fall in love, I could fall out of love. It's not that. I have to physically, I have to mentally, I have to heartly change and love her every single day. Now, granted, she makes it super easy for me to love her every day. She's amazing. See, I got that on tape, just so everybody is reminded, right? And so I can go back and pull it up and just say, here's what I said. Because there's some days, I guarantee you, it works both ways. She has to choose to love me too. And some days I'm hard to love. And your spouse may be difficult to love, but guess what? You've made the commitment to love, honor, and cherish. In God's eyes, when you're married, it's permanent. It's permanent. I know divorce happens. I want you to know that God is there to, God's there for that. And He can forgive and does forgive. But the mindset is a heart condition. You see, when my wife and I first got married, we, this was 27 years ago now. My goodness, has it been that long. I don't know how she's put up with me. For 27 years, I, we, we told each other that it was, we were just going to be committed. It was, that's all there was. There wasn't another option. Not that we didn't want to from time to time to, to, to say, you know what, I'm done with this. It's too hard. I'll tell you, I didn't make it easy on her. And there are times when she didn't make it easy on me, but we still had the commitment there. We still had, we said, we're going to do this. We're going to make it work because there's no other option. Right? We said it in our vows, death do you part. That's the only option I got. I told her sometimes, if she dies, I'm going with her. I don't have to, but you know. It's the whole thing. It's a heart issue. Well, let me give you some more because Jesus isn't done. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, right after that. Again, you've heard that it had been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but thou shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. It's about oath-keeping. It's a heart issue. I swore it, but I really didn't mean it. Oh, do we do that? Yeah, we do it often. It's a heart issue. Just go a few more verses down. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You've heard it been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. It's a heart issue. We want to retaliate. That's how we operate. You do to me, I'm going to give it right back. But that's not the way God intended. It's a heart issue. Last one. Matthew 5, 43. Just a few verses after that. You've heard it been said, by them, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Now that sounds easy. Right? But read what Jesus says. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now, I got news for you. This is where maturity comes in as a Christian. Because your enemies hate you, but it is hard not to hate them back. And it takes some Christian living to be there. But it's possible because it's a heart issue. You know, we were enemies with God. Romans chapter 5 tells us that. We were enemies of God. And yet, while we were enemies of God, guess what? He loved us and died for us that we might have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how much He loved us despite us hating Him. We were God-haters. Say, how did, I wasn't a God-hater. I, I, I just didn't know about it. You were a God-hater. Let me tell you how you did it. You, you've used His name in vain. You've gone off and, and committed sin against Him. You're a God-hater. You know, you'll obey those you love. You'll obey those you love. I had a, one of my children, who shall remain nameless. I've gotten that figured out. I'm not supposed to name names in the pulpit. Apparently they get a little weird about that. One of my children used to ask all the time, Dad, am I, am I being good? Well, Sure. I, I love you whether you're good or bad. But I, I'm thankful for when they're good. 
And there are some times whenever they looked at me and I, and I could see the defiance in some of their faces. Where they knew what my rule was, but what they do? The complete opposite. How is that possible? I remember, I tell this story often, I, I probably tell it too much. I, I was walking through the grocery store with, with my, young, or my oldest son at the time, and uh, there was this little boy. And he comes wheeling around the corner, and he runs up the aisle just as fast as he can. He stops at the far end, and about two seconds later, I see his mother appear at this end. And he looks at her, and she tells him, come back here. And he looks at her, and he grins real big and darts around the corner. Goes completely the other way. That's how that works sometimes. We're in complete defiance of God. Okay, so what have we learned here? That repetition's necessary and that there's no new thing under the sun. God is reintegrating or reintegrating our, our spiritual truths over and over again. Why? Because we need to get it. It's like the pastor of an old country church one time. He began to preach on sin. And every Sunday he would, he would preach on a particular sin. And one Sunday he stopped on a particular sin. And he just kept preaching. And for the next six weeks he preached that same sermon over and over and over and over. And finally the men were just exhausted from it. And they said, Preacher, can you not move on to something else? We've heard this, this, this sermon about this for, for the last six weeks. He said, I'll be glad to as soon as you start listening. We're hard-headed people. We are. God has to bring it back every time. Now let's move to the second motivation of a pastor against heresy. He does it, one, at that beginning place where, where he wants to make sure that you know, we've got that sense of urgency built in. But then his second motivation is, is just as simple. It's one of diligence. We're required as preachers of the gospel to preach the gospel. It's not complicated. You're going to hear me talk about the law. You're going to hear me talk about judgment that's coming. And you're going to hear me talk about the forgiveness of God all the time. Just get ready for it. In case you're, you're, ready, you're not ready for it, it's going to happen probably again before I finish the sermon. But I need you to understand, there is a diligence of every pastor. Take a look in our passage. This is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Here's what it says. Though, uh, the last part of it, it says, Though you know them, and be established in the present truth, he says. It's basically a question of me doing my due diligence. And every teacher worth their salt, if you're a public school teacher, private school teacher, mom, dad, pastor, preacher, teacher, whatever it is, you're going to do the same thing. You're going to be diligent in repeating yourself. Those same truths. Do you know how many times it took for me to memorize my multiplication tables? How many remember that? You can raise your hand. It's church. It's okay. I remember in the fourth grade, Dr. Or, excuse me, Mr. Schull's uh, fourth grade math class, he was teaching uh, mathematics to us, and he says, we're going to train you to know your multiplication tables. Now, they may not do this nowadays. I have no idea. I'm a little far removed from that. About 40 years. 35. <laughs> I remember writing them down. One times one is one. One times two is two. All the way up through twelves, right? We only went through twelves. I never understood why, but we only went through twelves. And we memorized them. It wasn't a matter of, of trying to even recall them. It was muscle memory after a while. In fact, I made money in, in elementary school. I got in trouble for making money. I would sit at recess and I would write multiplication tables because math class was after, after recess. And I would write them out for everybody else. I had them all down in my head. And guess what? I got paid a quarter a page. Making money. Here's, here's, the, here's the thing for us. The repetition of it, if I were to ask you right now, let's just see, what's seven times seven? I'm listening to see if anybody's wrong. No. 49. 7 times 7 is 49. If I said, hey, what's 7 times 5? 35. Do you know how you know that? Because you've memorized that. You know what it is. You didn't sit there and go, okay, I got 7 in this group, 7 in this group, 7 in this group. If I count them all up, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. You didn't do that. You said 7 times 5 is 35. That's what Paul the Apostle, or excuse me, Peter the Apostle is trying to get to us. He says, we've given you the truth. Now let's see if you can remember it. 
though you know them, he says, he says, we already know you know them. We're making sure you have the knowledge of the truth. Right? That's point A, by the way. Making sure the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to under the knowledge of the truth. You see, there's a, a certain amount of knowledge that, that's expected. When you get born again, when you get saved by the grace of God, there is a knowledge and understanding of that salvation. Now what's happening after that, that is the foundation of what and who you are. Now you're expected to build on it. Do you know the reason why they teach memorization of multiplication tables in the third and fourth grades? I can tell you why. Maybe the second grades now, but kids are much smarter than I ever was. They do it because algebra's coming. I know it, right? It's like the Lord coming. Algebra's coming. You've got to build the foundation, though. The foundation starts with one plus one, moves to one, time, one times one, moves to the division and all of that, so that you can have that basic understanding because when algebra comes, suddenly letters get introduced and we have no idea what to do with letters. We're multiplying letters and I don't get it. It took me a while to understand algebra. I took algebra in the 6th, 7th, 8th grade. Three years of it. And then took it again in high school in Algebra 2 and all that good stuff. All those things are there. We, it built upon a foundation. Built upon a foundation. Can I tell you that that's what, that's what Peter is trying to secure? A foundation for us. Here's what he says. Listen to it again. Let me make sure you get, catch it real quick. He says, Though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. He wants you to know it right now. Now, Let's go to another passage, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. This is to the church. And he writes it to the church at, where Timothy is. Timothy's at, uh, at Ephesus. Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says this, But if I tarry long, that thou may know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. See, there's a knowledge of the truth that it's expected. And then knowledge is built upon that pillar and foundation that is the truth. Thirdly, let me give you this piece of scripture. This is from last time, Second uh, Peter, or excuse me, next time. I mean, Second Peter chapter one, verse nineteen. Just a few verses later in our passage, it says, "We also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto the light that shineth in a dark place, unto the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God which spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You know, one of the greatest things we have is that Word of God, and knowing it can save your life. Let me help you out with that. You want to know how the Word of God can save your life? One, it gives you eternal securities found in the Word of God. Okay, that's first and primary. But secondly, there's other things. The fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That tells me that I need to be praying often. Well, give me something a little more practical. Well, there's all kinds of things in Scripture. If you look up, did you know that we understood that the life of man is found in the blood? We find that in the Old Testament. We find out about four corners of the earth, north, south, west, east. In Scripture, we find all kinds of scientific proofs in Scripture. Piece by piece, we can know them and know that God's Word is secure and straight and right. It is the truth. Okay? Second thing I want to give you under this one, under diligence. The motivation of a pastor has always got to be about diligence as well as urgency. It's to establish a more secure foundation. It's to sure it up. You know, have you ever, have you ever dug a tunnel? I don't know. I was a boy once. Do boys dig tunnels now? Okay, I used to dig tunnels, and I would find a crevice big enough for me to get into, and I'd start digging it out. I used to go uh, uh, spelunking is what they call it now. We just, we just said, I'm going to go to a cave and dig around in there. That's what we did. And so, and I would find places I could go, and, but there were those places where the earth was kind of falling down. You had to sure it up. We took, we took timber in there, cut logs and whatnot, and braced up the sides. We used to do it with... Uh, our ramps jumping across little ravines on our bicycles and things as a kid. It's a wonder I survived, right? And, and we, if you didn't stir up the back of that thing, when you hit that thing, it would just collapse. 
We need to sure up our knowledge and understanding of the Word of God. It needs to be secure. So let me give you some scripture to help you here. This is Romans chapter 15, verse 1. It says, We then that are strong ought to bear up, ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. That means you need to learn from other people. Learn from people who've been there, done that, or they've studied it and know it. Come under their understanding and under their tutelage. Right? Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification, for even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that fell on thee fell on me. For whatsoever the things were written aforetime were written for our learning. You know what's crazy? Is you can learn. The Bible doesn't, doesn't just, you know, take only the good things and, and leave out the bad things. It leaves the bad things in so that we can know. One of the great things about Scripture is there have been people who have been there where you are and have done that, and you can learn from them. You know, I can learn from my own mistakes. I get it. But isn't it better to learn from the mistakes of others, too? Or, better yet, follow instructions and you won't have to make the mistakes at all. Right? Uh, the, the first way is the way of every man. The beginning of wisdom is the second way. I'm learning from Rick. The mistakes he made, I'm not going to make those. And then, I, and then I pick it up and I go, you know what? if there was just an instruction book that told me how I can avoid the mistakes in the first place. Oh, yeah, we got that. It's called the Word of God. And he tells us expressly. Second piece of scripture I'll give you on that and I'll finish. Jude chapter 1, for those of you taking notes. Jude 1. <laughs> Jude 1. This is Jude verse 3. There you go, that'll help you. Beloved, when I, came, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Jude was about to write. Now Jude's the half-brother of Jesus. And, he, and it's a companion text to 2 Peter. Right? They're almost identical in a lot of things they say. But he says, I was going to write on the, uh, about the common salvation. I was going to write about your salvation. And we were going to talk about the great things that God was doing in your salvation. But now I've got to write to you concerning the contending for the faith because there's heresy that's coming out. That's basically where you had to go. It's written down as a warning so that we might know we need to have a secure foundation okay now number three and we'll finish i'm almost there guys stay with me the motivation the third motivation is faithfulness take a look in 13 through 15 yeah i think it meet as long as i'm in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance knowing that shortly i must put off this tabernacle even as our lord jesus christ has showed me moreover i will endeavor that you may endeavor, excuse me, that you may be able after my decease to have all have these things always in remembrance. Now, Paul, Peter is writing and understanding that his time is up. He's in his seventies when he writes Second uh, Peter, and he figures out God's God's prophecy concerning him is about to take place. It's about to hit, and there's this motive of faithfulness that comes. I know that my time in this tabernacle, meaning his body, is limited. Oh, I don't know how long I'm going to live. I once heard a preacher preach like there's no tomorrow. That's what he said. He said, preach like you're never going to preach again. Every single time. Now, I'm not the kind of preacher he is. He's, just, he's one of those, those, those deep Southern Baptist preachers who, who, who can really get with it and has, has a loud screaming voice. That's not me. I'm more of a teacher preacher. That's what I do. But here's what it says. Hear it again, the last part. Knowing that shortly I must put off this tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me, where I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. His purpose in life was to help them remember. So let me give you three things. He's got to know his calling. See, a pastor's got to know his calling. And if a pastor doesn't know that he's called to pastor, he shouldn't be pastoring. Straight up. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt when, when the Lord called me to preach his word, I was going to be a pastor of a church somewhere. That was what I knew I was, it was coming. you got to know. Because you won't do this if you don't know. Let me, let me help you out. There will be times in your ministry, if you're a, a, a pastor of a church, where the congregation will want to choke you out, if they can. There are times when they'll want to vote you out, choke you out, and help you out. But I doubt any of them all happen at the same time. Although they may be thinking they will. 
it may be, they may be thinking they're helping you out by choking you out or voting you out. But can I tell you, you've got to know your calling because if you don't, the ministry will eat you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are being saved, or which are saved, it is the power of God. You see, you'll get those two things confused in a hurry if you're not called. 2 Timothy chapter 1, this is Paul writing to young Timothy, says in verse 11, Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know in whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which is committed unto him against that day. You see, Paul the apostle knew. There's no equivocation there. Peter knew. Jude knew. Preachers of the gospel know exactly their calling. There are some who are called to be great evangelists. There are some who are called to be pastors. There are some who are called to be everything under the sun. But can I tell you that every single one of them has to know their calling. And I guarantee you the fallout rate. By the way, did you know that in certain Baptist denominations, the fallout rate for pastors is anywhere from 18 months to three years. They'll do it for 18 months to three years, and they're done. Ministry takes its toll. My wife will tell you that. I'm only recently getting my health back, at least a little bit. Starting to take off a couple pounds here and there. I can't get my hair to grow back. That's permanently gone. Can't help that. It takes a toll. It wears on you mentally, physically, spiritually. It eats you. You've got to know that you've been called to do it. No equivocation. Secondly, he must be faithful to stir up the people of God. I love that passage right there where it says stir up. It, it literally means to agitate. Preachers are good at agitating. We are so good at it. People are too, but preachers are really good at it. You know how we do it? We do it with the Word of God. When the Word of God says something, what do we do? We tell people and they get irritated by it. Now, this is where being, being a pastor, you have to have thick skin. Because if, if I let everybody who got offended at everything I said get to me, I'd be out of the ministry. Because nobody puts up with it very long. Here, here's what happens. You'll put up with preaching as long as it doesn't offend you about that long. And then you'll pack your bags and leave and find yourself another church to go to. You know how I know that? Because it happens often. People get offended at the Word of God and so they say, well, I'm out of here. Or, or they'll do the other. They'll, they'll bow up. They'll bow up against, against a preacher in a church. They will. I've seen it done. They'll, they'll come against a preacher and they'll say, Preacher, I don't believe it. I watched it happen to a man, and, and, and years later I just wanted to, I found him one day and I wanted to apologize so bad. I, I wasn't in on it. I was a young man and I was in the back taking care of the boys and, and uh, helping the young men you know, learn and things. And, and these men ate this guy up. He mentioned the word slave in regards to our position in Christ. I didn't know how right he was. And the men of the church took to him and, and said, we're not slaves, we've been set free by Christ. And, and they, they wanted him gone because they didn't like what he was preaching. They didn't like some of the things he was doing in the church. And they ate him up for it. And he's out, he was out of the ministry. Last I saw, he was stocking shelves in a grocery store. The man of God has to, be, has to know his calling, right? He's also got to stir up people. Stirring up people looks like this. This is Ephesians chapter 5. This is the Apostle Paul writing. Listen to it. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest. Do you know that people that are asleep, a people that are asleep will, don't want to wake up. I know why. They like their sleep. My kids don't like it when dad comes in, turns on the light. Starts going through, pounding on the door. Say, hey, it's time to wake up. It's 10 o'clock. It's time to wake up, right? Earlier than that, they hate it really bad. Seven o'clock, Dad. Oh, it's so early. You know. They don't like it. They don't like it when the light comes on. And the Bible tells us, Awake thou that sleepest. Pay attention to it. Here's what it says. Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ will give thee light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. He says, don't go around thinking, thinking doing foolish things. He says, go after the wise stuff. Redeeming the time. It means knowing the time. 
because the days are evil. Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Can I tell you that the will of the Lord is for you to be circumspect in how you live your life daily. It's to be alive in Christ so that you might get out there and be a part of what's going on about the spiritual kingdom to come and about the spiritual kingdom that's here. Both. It's about being engaged. Quit being a sleepy Christian. Engage your faith. All right. Last thing I'll say today here. This is the last point. It says he must, and the pastor must be faithful to put you in remembrance. I would not be worth my salt if I didn't go back sometimes and reiterate. Some of you say, well, I've heard you preach that before. I've heard you say that before. Well, maybe we need to learn it again because the Holy Spirit's moved me to say it again because I hate to bring it to you. We don't always get it, and I'm the worst among you. There are days whenever I, I look in the Scripture and I go, I know you told me to do that, Lord, but I didn't do it. So are you having me learn it again and I have to suffer through it again? Guess what? It, it, it comes to you too. Because it comes to me. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest any time we should let them slip. I didn't write, I didn't write that. That's God's writing that. We ought to give more earnest heed to the things which we've heard, lest at any time we let them slip. It's easy to sin. It's a whole lot harder to stay righteous. It's a whole lot harder to stay in the center of God's will. Then he says, listen to this. He says this in verse 2. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him? You see, here's the writing, and here's what he says. He says, we're in trouble if we would take the sayings of angels and sayings of, of this particular group and, and the Word of God here, but we miss the salvation that was wrought in us. And we go back and we have to hear it again and again and again. Listen to verse 4. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to His own will. You see, God's in the business of holding us accountable. Boy, how we hate to hear instruction repeated. You know what we do? Here's what we do with it. We tune it out. Say, huh? Oh, I don't have to listen to that. It drives me crazy. Because here's the thing. God puts on, on some pastor's heart, some preacher's heart to preach a message. And it, I, I just remember a story I read one time about Charles Spurgeon. He had gone to, um, uh, he had invited another man to come and to preach. And so Charles Spurgeon was himself sitting in the, uh, in the seats there. And the man began, he, he, he didn't know he was going to preach. He just ended up there and ended up preaching. And he gets up and he, and he begins with the basics of Christianity. All, all men are sinners. And as he began his simple sermon of salvation, the man was ridiculed after because it was such a simple sermon. And he was in one of the greatest, pre, uh, greatest churches of the day. And he was preaching this simple sermon about all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And, and, and B comes along and... And see, and he gives these three, this three-point outline. And Charles Spurgeon's sitting in the front row and weeping. Weeping at salvation. Being taught to him. One of the greatest preachers ever born on this planet. Hearing the message of salvation simply through an ABC sermon. And he's bawling. And he writes an editorial back to the paper that wrote the, the, the terrible description of what went on in that church with that simple sermon and rebutted it. Why'd he do it? Simply, he was moved by the gospel. When we hear instruction, sometimes we tune it out. Oh, I don't need that. I'm already saved. Oh, I don't need that. That's not my issue. Can I help you with that a little bit? Every message is meant for you, whether you need it or not. It's meant for me as much as it is you. I hope you hear it. I hope you hear the heart of a pastor fighting back against heresy and his motivations. <clears throat> that first motivation, by the way, that's the easy one. That's urgency. That's built in, the gospel message. The second one is diligence. And this third one is faithfulness. He has to be faithful. 
He has to move to that calling. Jesus even said it Himself, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. <laughs> Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and enter into, to enter into His glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. It's funny. Sometimes we think the basic things of Christianity are just... But can I tell you that the pastor, the heart of the pastor is faithfulness to it. You have to preach when, nobody, when you think nobody's listening. Because a lot of times they aren't. We need to know the motivations of a pastor. Especially when it concerns fighting back against heresy. Some have asked me from time to time, why do you stay so diligent in teaching doctrine? I, I repeat doctrine often. We have a doctrinal class. We've, we, Sunday school teaching is doctrine on purpose because I want you to know what you believe. When heresy comes and when somebody comes into this church, because it may happen, something may happen to me, and some other preacher may come in here and you hear him start preaching about baptismal regeneration and, and, and he's saying that you've got to be baptized in order to be saved. It's a complete falsehood and a heresy. And if you don't know what you believe, don't know what the Bible says about that, you will fall for it every single time. Or maybe it's not that one. Maybe it's another one that says you've got to be saved by speaking in tongues, being slain in the Spirit, and all those kinds of things. Can I tell you, heresy will come. And you need to know what you believe. That's why preachers preach. That's why pastors teach. That's their heart, to fight against heresy. Let's stand.